95% of the pop music that's out there is utter garbage. But the other 5% is worthy of the attention of all serious, thinking people. And he looked very Harvard, very professorial. And then he said, I like this music. And I thought, wow, incredible. It's OK to like the Beatles, Herman's Hermits, who really are very good, Voodoo <laughs> Janis Ian. Boy, there was a one-hit wonder of fifth-rate talent. But he had her on the TV show as well. And he did the unanswered question, those lectures at Harvard a couple of years later, uh, as Charles Elliott North Chair, professor of poetry, the unanswered question guess, being, I guess, what's music all about? And he attempted to, um, to answer it. International superstar, conductor, composer, performer. Unlike some other Broadway composers and other American composers, Jewish composers, not born on the Lower East Side like Gershwin, born in Lawrence, Massachusetts, to actually very affluent, successful Jewish parents. So comparing him with his predecessor, George Gershwin, there's a yawning chasm between the backgrounds that these two men had. I was here, or down in Rancho Bernardo a few months back, to speak to you about Gershwin. And I think I mentioned at the time that here's a man who grew up really on the streets of the Lower East Side. He didn't have a lot of formal musical education. He was an astonishingly good pianist, but a lot of it was self-taught. And when he came to speak about his music, he sounded a little bit like a guy who hadn't quite finished high school. Bernstein, the absolutely most elite education possible, Boston Latin School. That's like going to Andover or Exeter. Harvard, you're at that place, pretty good at pretty high standards. He went there to um, Curtis, studied with Fritz Reiner. Apparently, he had a complicated relationship with his father. All right, who doesn't? Um, that's interesting, sort of. But I mention it now because when I come in a few minutes to talk a little bit about this specifically, explicitly Jewish-themed music, the father relationship is going to come up in one important connection. But let me say just a couple of preliminary words about Bernstein's attitude toward Judaism and Jewishness. Very much immersed in it for his whole life. That also sets him apart from Gershwin. Gershwin's family didn't really give a hoot about religion at all. But the Bernstein family is apparently fairly serious about it. And there's a the complicated relationship with the dad, which I'll get back to very much immersed in Jewish music, which I'm going to get to in just a second when I talk about the musical influences on Bernstein. Another thing to mention, here are twin kind of polar opposite tendencies in Bernstein. It says a lot about his very complicated character. So first, even before there was such a thing as the state of Israel, he was a fervent supporter of Jewish life in what was still Palestine. He performs in Tel Aviv as early as 1947, the year before independence, two years before UN recognition. Later on, he gives the inaugural concert of the Man Auditorium in the same city in the 1950s. 1967, after the Six Day War, he gives a concert on Mount Scopus to celebrate the reunification of Jerusalem. And as you probably know, he had a long, long history of recordings and performances with the Israel Philharmonic. So kind of solid support for the state of Israel, real kind of Zionist commitment. But here's the other thing, because Bernstein never wanted to be explicitly a Jewish conductor, Jewish composer. He wanted, he didn't want to, his whole kind of musical, artistic personality to be exclusively associated with that dimension of his life. So here, after World War II, any internationally famous conductor, composer, has to face a fairly major dilemma. You get 
invitations, solicitations from orchestras all over the world. Some of the very, very best orchestras in the world were, for example, the Vienna Philharmonic, the Berlin Philharmonic. All right, 1950, 1955, 1960, guess who's filling the ranks of those orchestras and kind of guess what they might have been doing a few years earlier, between 1939 and 1945. So here's the thing. Are you going to accept an invitation to conduct those orchestras, given who's sitting in those chairs? The answer was yes. This aroused a lot of controversy during Bernstein's life, especially in the first generation or so after World War II. But whether or not you agree with him, he firmly believed that the responsibility of an artist of his stature was to be global, was to be international, sort of ecumenical, even if it meant what some regarded as a serious compromise in principles in accepting the baton of the Vienna and Berlin Philharmonic orchestras. It also meant conducting music by guys like Michal Strauss. Now that's not just some German composer who happened to live in Germany during the Nazi era. It's a composer who was the darling of, or a darling of the Nazi regime. Again, Bernstein's decision was, this is the world of art. We have to go beyond the politics, even those highly charged politics. And if we find this music to be worthy of my talents, then I'm going to conduct it. So complex in all ways. Let's talk about the music now. Bernstein was as complicated and eclectic in his musical background as he would turn out to be in his musical output. And it seems to me that in Bernstein's case, and in the case of a lot of other composers, speaking of him now as a composer, you can kind of get a sense of his musical output from really just the stuff that he listened to and claimed later in life to have enjoyed. It's particularly helpful, I think, in the case of, of Bernstein, because again, when you look at the breadth of what he wrote, the variety of what he wrote, you have to try to sort of account for where this all came from. If you look at Brahms or Chopin, even Bach, who wrote more music than any human being in the history of the species, you're not looking at you know the type, you know, of course there's variety. There are slow pieces, there are fast pieces, there are complicated pieces, there are simple pieces. But when you look at Bernstein, you're talking about music that sounds like something written in the early 19th century, and then you're talking about something that sounds as if Stravinsky had written, and something else that sounds like a smarmy show tune, and something else that's hugely complicated and dissonant, you'd hardly believe that the same guy wrote all this stuff. So where did it all come from? Well, here are just a few examples. Of course, Bernstein heard and performed everything, so it would be impossible to give a list or account for a list of all the things that uh, find their way into his background. But just to give a few kind of contrasting examples. Here's a piece that he claims to have heard as a kid, to have begun to play obsessively and repeatedly to the point where his mother used to be brought to tears. Now what he didn't explain was was she crying because she couldn't stand it anymore? <laughs> or was she crying because you know it was just so beautiful? Anyway, you'll all certainly recognize this. I'll just play a few bars. I don't really have time to play pieces all the way through. But um, this is Bernstein's musical influence at its most, let's say, consonant and pleasant. <coughs> Thank you. 
thing about a piece like that, Chopin wrote music that was far more complicated than that, music with darker tones in it and dissonant sounds. But this is just a series of major chords and a couple of other chords thrown in, nice cadences, beautiful, nothing that even begins to suggest unpleasantness or tension or dissonance. And Bernstein loved it. And he was going to write stuff later on, I'll demonstrate in a couple of minutes, that's kind of like that. It wasn't everything he wrote. Now, a lot of what he wrote would really contrast as violently with that as you could possibly imagine. But at the other extreme, there's this. He talked about another composition, and in fact, we just passed the centennial of the premiere of this composition. It's Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. And Bernstein wrote, the whole modern movement, I'm quoting him, as I look at things, begins with the Sacre du Printemps. It stands as the primary example of continuous, consistent dissonance. All right, well, he liked it. Was that going to find its way into his music, too? Well, you bet. I'll demonstrate in a few minutes. But let me give you a sense of what he was talking about with the Rite of Spring. He produced some of the very, very best recorded performances of the major Stravinsky ballet suites, Firebird, Petrushka, and the Rite of Spring. And what he clearly had in mind, I mean, it comes through, it's very easy to demonstrate. You pick up passage almost at random and just start to play it, and the audience will hear, oh my god, that sounds pretty bad. That sounds pretty good at the same time. But what Stravinsky did that was so <coughs> striking in 1913, that premiere where fistfights broke out in the audience, maybe because of the music, maybe not, we don't know for sure. There were sound combinations that were just great and intentionally so. I'll show you some of those in a second. But there are other parts in this composition where he appeared to write one thing for instruments in the upper register of the orchestra. And it's as if he'd written a different piece for the instruments playing the lower register and just had them play them at the same time. They don't seem to have that much to do with each other. And that's the way it starts out. You might remember that the opening melody is played by, it sounds like an oboe, it's actually a bassoon, way at the top of its register. And it's kind of aimless sounding, and then when the other orchestra instruments come in, you go, what's that got to do with this, and how do they really fit together? Here's the bassoon. Continuous dissonance. 
And he's going to bring that even into his Broadway musicals. Who would have thought that somebody would do something like that? Another composition. He's always talking about things that he heard when he was a teenager. He would go home and play them all night in tears with a friend. And um, here's a piece that you'll definitely recognize. But this is one of those things that Bernstein claims to have played all night. But he also performed this numerous times during his career and from the piano. I mean, he was a pretty decent pianist. I mean, he wasn't Horowitz, but he was good enough to perform concerti from the piano. And this concerto style um, piece and uh, I'll explain in a second how it also works into his music. All right, that 
may not mean anything to you when you just hear those notes, but these notes down here is called a tritone. West Side Story is going to be filled with that combination of notes, and I'm going to illustrate that at the end of my presentation this evening by playing Cool, which is just based on that. Tin Pan Alley he listened to. He was also very much into kind of standard Jewish-sounding music, if there's such a thing. He loved the music of Ernest Bloch, and he wrote a series of compositions that use themes from what to an Ashkenazic culture sounded like Jewish music. So, for example, 1942, he composes his Jeremiah Symphony. And the third movement of that symphony is called Lamentation. And it takes its text from the Hebrew scriptures, from the, Lam the Book of Lamentations. And what Bernstein has done is to include something very unusual in a symphonic score, and that is a, a vocal line. You don't commonly find that. Beethoven's Ninth, Schumer, Chorus, other composers had tried that, but a solo vocal line in a symphony. And what the singer is singing is the opening verse, chapter one, verse one of Lamentations. Um, how, in the King James translation, how doth the city sit solitary that was full of people, but it's sung in Hebrew. And here is how the melody line goes. services on, um, on Shabbos. And there it is in a symphonic composition. Well, that looks like kind of an act of piety, an act of respect toward his uh, Jewish background and tradition. But the next composition of this sort is called Kaddish, and I'm sure many of you have heard of it, because I heard some of you talking about it over dinner. And here Bernstein has done something really, really unusual. And if lamentation sounded pious, Kaddish is something really quite different. He writes an orchestral score that is filled with crashing dissonant sounds, um, very similar to what I played in the Stravinsky a couple of minutes ago. Here again, we have a vocal component to the composition. So the orchestra has been playing for a little while, really creepy sounding dissonances. And then all of a sudden, a speaker begins to speak, not to sing or chant, but to speak. Bernstein wrote the text. Now, check this out and see what you think about the attitude toward his religious tradition. The speaker says these words. It's a male. In one famous recording, it's Yehudi Menuhin. I don't know why he was chosen, but he does it. But Bernstein himself did it. And in fact, when you hear these words, you can, he had a very kind of professorial, pedantic speaking style and totally appropriate to what he wrote here. But here's what he has the speaker say. O oh, my father, ancient, hallowed, lonely, disappointed father, betrayed and rejected ruler of the universe, angry, wrinkled old majesty, I want to pray. I want to say Kaddish, my own. There may be no one to say it after me. I have so little time, as you well know. Is my end a minute away, an hour? Is there even time to consider the question? It could be here, while we are singing, that we may be stopped 
once for all, cut off in the act of praising you. But while I have breath, however brief, I will sing this final cottage for you, for me, and for all those I love here in this sacred house. I want to pray, and time is short. And the chorus comes in and sings the actual Aramaic words of Kaddish. The speaker's going to come back again and again, and his speech is going to be nastier and more confrontational. This is an angry, bitter man shaking his fist at God and using Kaddish to accompany those blasphemous sentiments. What to make of that? That's a very different vibe from what we found in Lamentations. Lamentations was about the loss of the kingdom. This is an angry man looking at his God, practically spitting in his face. That's very different. How to bring that in? Um, I don't have the answer to that question, but it's a very, very striking composition and says something to us about the attitude that this man had toward his religious tradition. I would say it's complicated. I would say it would be silly to reduce it all to that set of sentiments in that composition because you have so much else to sort of countervail um, against it. And finally, there are the Chichester Psalms. Rabbi Feinstein mentioned the 23rd Psalms, and the 23rd Psalm, and this is one of the Psalms used in this composition. It is sung in Hebrew, and um, I don't have time to play a lot of it, but something that's always amused me about the Chichester Psalms, they were first performed in 1965. Well, let me just play you this melody. It's sung by a boys' choir, and this bit, this is the Hebrew text of the 23rd Psalm. It's sung by you know, a young boy whose voice has not changed. Um, tell me what this melody reminds you of, especially if, as I think is true of most of you in this room, you were around in 
than um, on the town. If I were to go back to Bernstein's musical heritage, the stuff I just played for you a little while ago, I would say, you know, this music, these harmonies come from Chopin and 19th century romantic um, music. And then there's West Side Story, which I'll get to in a second. But let me just replay the thing that I played as an interlude before you went into the lecture a little while ago. This is called Lucky, and the story here is Gady, one of the three sailors. Um, so this is only one day, but lots happens in one day. So he's just met a girlfriend, and he's feeling very, very lucky indeed. You know, one o'clock he didn't have a girlfriend, two o'clock he does have one, and that's, that's really quite wonderful. And um, the words are about how lucky he is to be me because he's met this, this girl. Bernstein, eclectic as always, 
got to try this hand at writing Latin-style music. Any of you seen the SAG Awards? Yes. Rita Moreno, yes. Uh, so oh, who played uh, Anita in the uh, fabulous uh, film version of this, won an Oscar for that and won $50,000 awards, won the Lifetime Achievement Award the other night um, uh, for the SAG um, Awards. So Latin music. And among the compositions that uh, could sound Latin if you play it that way is um, this one. Oh, here I want to call your attention to the thing I mentioned a couple of minutes ago. I talked about this musical interval. An interval is two notes. Once you get to three notes, you have a chord. Um, so just listen to this sound. Musicians call this a tritone. You can call it an augmented fourth, a diminished fifth, whatever it is. But the thing about it is that it's highly unstable. You can't finish a piece with that combination and walk off stage because it needs to get resolved. It can go here, or it can go, that's resolved, but just like that, it's the most unstable combination of two notes. There's a whole acoustical, physiological explanation for it that I won't bore you with. It's really true. But just from hearing it, you know that it sounds, it sounds suspenseful, it's unresolved. It's the dominant thing in all of West Side Story. Da -da, da -da. That's a tritone. It's all over the place in, in this whole um, musical. And given the nature of the plot, it's all about suspense and fighting and conflict and unresolved tensions. Good Lord. So it makes sense that you would use that little device in this musical. The weird thing is, he uses it in the most glorious love song of the musical, if not the most glorious love song in the whole history of musical theater in the United States. Um, and that's Maria. Now, why does it make sense to do that, though? Why would you take a love ballad? and uses the dominant motif in it, this highly suspenseful, unresolved thing, because the story is highly unresolved and suspenseful. The love that Tony has for Maria is hardly something that's all secure and it's just going to lead to a happy ending. On the contrary, so, Ber so um, Bernstein writes this.
two final compositions from West Side Story, um, and one in light of Rita Moreno's winning the Lifetime Achievement Award. Um, it's very easy to characterize, but most to say about this piece, I find it to be the most dramatic, compelling expression of anger in music that I can really think of. It's uh, a boy like that, and Bernstein has drawn on his dissonant musical heritage from Stravinsky and others to communicate the rage that Anita feels for the fact that Maria continues to see and love Tony after Tony has killed a member of their clan. And so this is what Bernstein does to communicate that sense of anger. Bars that an actual fugue by Bach, 
And then I'm going to play through all of Cool at the piano. Sorry, I'm not going to sing it for you. Um, and I'll show you the place where he's put the fugue into it. And by golly, it works. But here's what it um, sounds like in Bach. This is one of the most complicated fugues he wrote, but the initial melody is among the simplest. It's only five notes long. And I'll sort of call out as I go along to describe what's happening. Here's the second voice playing the same thing up above it. Thank you. 
Yes, please. Polonius Monk playing at this time? <laughs> oh, sure, yeah. Polonius Monk was around at this time. Right. I mean, bebop music started in the early 1940s and that kind of style. I mean, no bebop music sounded really like that, but he was taking the rhythm from that style. Blues is there, Gershwin's there, Stravinsky's there, Bach is there, everything is in that brilliant, brilliant composition. Yes? How do you explain the dance music? Because it's really goofy and it doesn't fit. The dance music in West Side Story, do you mean? Or? Da 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 da, like a circus. Da 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 da. Well, I mean, Bernstein collaborated with Jerome Robbins, and a lot of his music was set to dance and uh, very much dance oriented. I can't say much more about it than that. This doesn't fit those styles, any of those. Well, sure, it does. It's just easy. They just go like this off the beat and, and dance to it. That's how it pretty much works. Other questions? Yes, please. What are Bernstein's, what do you see as Bernstein's legacy in the concert hall today? His legacy in the concert hall today? You mean as a, a composer. as a composer or as a conductor? As a, both. Okay, um, so the short version of the answer, as a conductor, um, he introduced a real kind of flair and panache, partly because he was a real egotist, but he also had the brashness to and the courage to um, to put a tremendous amount of energy into music. I don't know if you're familiar with his famous recording of Carmen in 1973. Um, you know, you can perform Carmen, you can perform Carmen, but this, you know, sort of gave it that extra kick of, of energy that, that places it in a completely different category from any other performance of that um, of that opera. Um, as a composer, uh, yeah, what he did was, like lots of American composers who drew on a variety of different um, sources, he just drew on far more. So uh, when you take West Side Story and look at what went into that, what he listened to as a kid and as a young man, and, and put into that amazing um, musical, it kind of gives the range of not only American music, but in a sense, all European music as well. And uh, just a final comment on that, actually. Um, he's born in 1918. A little more than 20 years before his birth, Dvorak came to this country to serve as a guest conductor for a couple of years. And at that time, American classical music was absolutely derivative, third rate, not worth ever including in a concert program. So Dvorak kind of faced the problem, you know, what, what should you guys do? You perform European music brilliantly all the time, that's great, but what about your own stuff? Where are you going to go so that you can raise this up from where it is into something that's really worth listening to that can stand on an equal footing with Brahms or Rachmaninoff or Tchaikovsky or Ravel or Debussy or whoever else was being listened to at the time. And his answer was very, very simple. He said, Negro music, that's, that's what it is. So that means two things. Uh, when he said this, it meant spirituals because those had been collected by ethnographers and written up and transcribed and performed, and a generation or so later, it would mean the blues. Um, and he's not the only one who said that. He's certainly not the only one who took it to heart. Because from then on, you name the composer, Copeland, Bernstein, whoever it is, Ives, they're going to draw on that tradition, even non-African American composers. And from that moment on, American music becomes this very kind of self-consciously, self-reflective um, medium. You don't just write music, you draw on these traditions and you're conscious of taking all of this rich ethnic heritage and putting it into music. And I don't think anybody's career reflects that as well as, as Bernstein's for the variety and, and the eclecticism. 
It's probably a longer answer than you wanted. Why don't we take one last question? Well, I just wanted to back tag back on if I may. This guy's a professional musician, so, so he knows what he's talking about. Just an addendum, Nelly, to your question is his legacy as a conductor. I think we'd be remiss not to mention his championship of Mahler's music. Oh, yeah. That really, it's Bernstein who brings Mahler to the world, partly because the timing right. of the LP and when, right. when Bernstein is coming into his own. Right. And we couldn't fit Mahler's music onto 78s right. because it's so long. Uh -huh. right. But it's Bernstein that really brings Mahler to the world, and that's, that's one of his great gifts to the world. Yes, yeah. Okay. Do I have time for one more? Sure. Okay. I'm surprised you haven't mentioned the overture to Candy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Every lecture brings a question that starts with, I'm surprised you didn't mention <laughs> And uh, you don't want me to answer that because I say something that won't fly. I don't like it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't like it. But here, I'll say something interesting about it. Kandi and West Side Story um, were being composed around the same time. And it's curious that some music that was originally intended for Kandi, the music, not the words, of course, uh, finds its way to West Side Story and, and vice versa. But West Side Story is so much better than Kandi, don't you think? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all so much for coming.